Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 22. Last week, I covered the disease presented in the biblical text as leprosy, and what it likely was, and was not. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm wrapping up the people, places, and things found in the book of Numbers with the history of the town of Jericho. And with that, let's get started. The city of Jericho plays an important role in the history of the ancient Israelites, most pointedly in an event known as the Battle of Jericho. But that isn't found until the book of Joshua. The city is first mentioned in Numbers 22, and overall another seven times in the book. But all of the mentions in this portion of the Old Testament are of a geographic sort, most resembling the first verse of 22, which reads, The Israelites set out, encamped in the plains of Moab, across the Jordan from Jericho. I'll save the Battle of Jericho for when I get to the book of Joshua, and for now, concentrate on the history of that city and the region around it. The word Jericho in Hebrew is thought to be related to the Canaanite word for fragrant, likely stemming from the flowers and other plants native to the region. As the passage in Numbers suggests, Jericho is on the west bank of the Jordan River. Given where the Israelites were in this stage of their 40-year wait, on the east bank, it's easy to see why the city was mentioned as a landmark. And its position near the river and in the Jordan Valley has proven instrumental throughout its history. Backing up a bit, actually thousands of years, Archaeologists have dated the first identified settlements in the city to about 9000 BC. That would make it one of the oldest known cities in the world. And its wall, made famous in the book of Joshua, is the oldest known protective city wall in the world, with its initial construction estimated at around 8000 BC. This would mean that the city had been protected by a wall for close to 7,000 years before the Israelites showed up. I'll get to all of that in a minute, but first the very ancient history. The first settlement found at the site was atop a hill that is now known as Sultan's Hill. Instead of the word hill, the locals call it a tell. This location is a little over a mile so, a couple of kilometers from the present city. Here, there are literally layer upon layer of settlements, demonstrating almost continuous occupation over the subsequent thousands of years. Almost. What kept it from being continuous in its early history is thought to be the climate. Well, the climate and technology, as the earliest finds predate the introduction of regular agriculture to the region. So, the people who left those artifacts behind were likely nomadic, maybe herders. These artifacts date to around 10,000 BC. At the time, the region was colder and drier than it is today, and even more so than it was in the millennia between. But, on the hill is a natural spring, and in a dry period, think drought, a spring from which water constantly flows is certain to attract herders. I'm going to pause on the geography for a second. The city is located in the Jordan Valley, and owing to its proximity to the Dead Sea, 
is well below sea level. It's the lowest city in the world. The spring produces, at least currently, about 1,000 gallons of water a minute, which is close to 4,000 liters. There is another source of water nearby, the Wadi Kelt, which I'll get to in a minute. For now, back to the ancient history. While moving their flocks, or herds, or whatever animals they were shepherding, the nomads would stop here and leave artifacts behind. What has been found from the era tends to be stone tools. Later, sometime between the 9th and 10th millennia, the weather began a slow shift. This is roughly, very roughly, about the same time as the end of the last ice age. In this region, the result was warmer, wetter weather, and the ability for constant life-sustaining agriculture, probably emmer wheat and barley, and with that, permanent settlement, settlement that has lasted through today. These first settlements have been dated to between 9500 and 9000 BC. They seem to have lacked pottery, or at least durable pottery, as no such artifacts have survived. What has survived are the remnants of their houses, which were circular and constructed from sun-dried clay bricks embedded with straw. Think back to Exodus 5, when the Pharaoh ordered the Israelites to make bricks without straw, likely around 1500 BC. It seems this construction material was in use for thousands of years. In Jericho, these houses were about 16 feet, 5 meters across. The roof was likely brush, think thatch, embedded with more clay mud. But, very unsurprisingly, remnants of the roofs have not survived. So, their actual construction is a bit speculative. Fireplaces have been found on both the inside and outside of the houses. So far, dating to the late 9th millennia, about 70 such homes have been uncovered. So, there could have been more there does not appear to have been any sort of pre-planned layout, as the location of the buildings seems very haphazard. Essentially, no streets. In the next millennia, the city would grow to about 10 acres, or 4 hectares. Sometimes you will see this settlement called Sultanian, owing to its location on the Sultan's Hill. It was during this period that the city's wall was first built a wall that was 12 feet, nearly 4 meters high, and 6 feet, almost 2 meters wide at its base. This wall appears to have remained in use for about 500 years. Inside of this wall was a stone tower standing an impressive 28 feet, over 8 meters tall. Inside the tower, stone stairs would lead to the top. It's estimated that the wall would have taken at least 10,000 man days to build. If you assume they had a hundred men working uninterrupted on it, that would mean it took at least three months. This, when combined with the number of dwellings at the time, implies that the society had a sort of social organization, and therefore a leader. Given the size of the village and the number of houses, the population at the time is thought to have been in the neighborhood of two to three thousand. For the time, this wall was an impressive defensive structure, which, of course, indicates the presence of looters or organized forces attempting to sack the city. 
At least, that's what most researchers skew towards. There is a contingent that posits the wall was to prevent floodwaters from entering the city, and the tower was for ceremonies, potentially religious ceremonies. After this period, the record goes silent, as no artifacts have been found that date to the period between about 8000 and 6800 BC. Some think the settlement was abandoned. Others that it only indicates that nothing has been uncovered. What is known is that the next set of artifacts, the ones from about 6800 BC, provide the potential for insight into their religion, which was a bit unusual. At the time, they preserved human skulls, skulls that were layered with plaster and seemed to have had mollusk shells placed where the eyes were formerly. These skulls had their jaws removed. So far, ten such pieces have been found. In my mind, reconstructed to look as much like their dead relatives as their technology allowed. One building remnant from the period may have been a sort of religious shrine, with a column and a niche thought to indicate the importance of the building, though this theory is highly debated. It is possible that in the intervening 1,200 years, more people moved in and societies merged. In this period, the houses shifted from round to rectangular, with stone foundations and the same mud-straw bricks for the walls. They tended to have separate rooms built around a central courtyard. Some of the rooms even had solid floors made from limestone. And limestone is a soft rock which explains why many of the floors that survived bear the impression of what appears to have been rugs or mats, likely made from reeds or rushes. The archaeological finds from the period were far more numerous and diverse, and include flint arrowheads, sickles, axes, and all sorts of other tools, bowls, dishes, all of these made of stone. It was the Stone Age, after all. There were also objects molded from clay and plaster, such as figurines. They had jewelry made from shells and malachite, a bright green mineral, green because of its copper content, but that age had yet to arrive. The Copper Age would come, and followed relatively shortly by the Bronze Age, arriving in Jericho around 2700 BC. If we base Abraham's life on when Hammurabi lived, this would mean the Bronze Age had been going on in Jericho for a couple of hundred years when Abraham showed up in the region. It was during this period that a palace was built in Jericho. Also in the period, and not surprising considering the Old Testament tells us what was in store for the city, during the early Bronze Age, the city rebuilt its walls. It was at this time that Jericho is estimated to have reached its peak population, though I could find no estimate on an actual headcount. As the years passed, the city would continue to thrive, just not at the extent of its former self. This was likely due to other regional city-states catching up with them. There was an elaborate system of underground burial chambers, complete with vertical shafts, thought to indicate the emergence of a ruling class. This would make sense, as during this portion of the Copper and Bronze Ages, regional rulers were popping up in most of the city-states. At the time, 
The city was surrounded by an extensive defensive wall that had stone towers adding to its strength. It's thought all of this was occurring at the same time as the rise of a group now known as the Marianu. These were a regional class of nobility known for their use of chariots in warfare. They were mentioned in Exodus 14 when the Pharaoh changed his mind about allowing the Israelites to leave and pursued them with his charioteers. At this time, the regional Mitanni were on the rise, with their territory centered around what is today eastern Turkey and Syria. Jericho lay right at the fringe of their territory, so it's possible that Jericho was under their control. It appears that during this time, the walls of the city were strengthened further, possibly indicating the city was defending itself from the Mitanni, or perhaps was part of the Mitanni and since it would have been on the fringe of their territory, defending from outside invaders. Then, something that, while interesting, isn't terribly surprising. Sometime during the 16th century BC, the city fell. More specifically, between about 1617 and 1530 BC, according to the carbon dating of artifacts. Of course, the Old Testament in Joshua tells of this, though the date is slightly off from when the exodus is thought to have occurred. But don't lose sight that we're trying to align dates from an ancient text with other events in the region, think Egypt, with carbon dating of artifacts that sat buried for thousands of years. That it's actually as close as that is close enough for me. After the city was overrun, it seems to have been largely abandoned, the only uncovered artifacts from that era point towards a much smaller settlement. It would remain this much smaller version of its former self for about the next 600 years, until around the 10th century BC, when it looks like it was rebuilt. Or at a minimum, there was some prosperity, as a relatively large house has been uncovered from the period. And by relatively large, it had four rooms. So large when compared to others in the period and place. Over the next couple of hundred years, by the 7th century BC, the town grew some more, only to be destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century when they sacked the kingdoms of Israel. From that time forward, it was again a minor settlement, even after the restoration after the Babylonian captivity, and even while controlled by the later Persians. Of course, the Persians would fall to Alexander the Great, and as part of that campaign, Jericho would come under control of the Greeks. Alexander would build a private estate in the area of Jericho, likely chosen because of its strategic location and available natural resources. Alexander would die an untimely death, and his former empire would be split among his generals. Later, in the 2nd century BC, when the Maccabees were revolting, Syrian general Bacchidus would construct several forts in the area. One of these was later rebuilt by Herod the Great and renamed Kipros in honor of his mother. Over the next few hundred years, the location of Jericho would slowly move away from the Sultan Hill and towards its present location, essentially on both banks of the Wadi Kelt. This stream finds its source near Jerusalem, only 16 miles, 26 kilometers, to the west-southwest, at least as the crow flies. 
The Wadi flows into the Jordan River near Jericho. With the gradual relocation, both the Wadi and the natural springs would evolve from just providing drinking water to also being used for irrigation. This would allow the residents to expand their gardens and foster the city's re-emergent reputation. Also in the period, the Hasmoneans would control the area, ruling somewhat independently from the Greek Seleucids. They would maintain this control even after the arrival of the Romans. Herod the Great was one of these Hasmoneans. More on him in a second. Mark Anthony would come to control the palace at Jericho, and as part of his wooing of the Greek queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, he would give her the palace. This was while Herod was the client ruler of the region. During this period, the Hasmonean high priest, Aristobulus III, would drown in a palace pool. A drowning many thought was actually a murder under the direction of Herod. I'll go into more depth on this when I get to the history of Herod. Of course, as I covered in the history of Egypt, both Antony and Cleopatra would commit suicide in 30 BC, and with that, Octavian gained control over all of the Roman Empire. He would then give Herod control over Jericho, among other places. And with that, the palace became his, and is where he would win her. Herod would earn the nickname Great, due to all of his building projects, which included a hippodome-slash-theater and new aqueducts for irrigation. And he had a personal stake in both of these projects, as the theater was for the use of his royal guest, and the aqueduct to irrigate the palace gardens. In this period, the city was at the crossroads of regional trading routes and continued to thrive as an agricultural center. Owing to its climate, not only did Herod overwinter there, but much of the ruling class and wealthy from Jerusalem did as well. After Herod's death, his former kingdom would be divided among his sons, with Herod Archelaus taking control of Jericho. He would construct a worker's village near the city, built to house the laborers for his local date plantation. Strabo, the 1st century BC Greek geographer, described Jericho as being on a plain surrounded by a kind of mountainous country, which in a way slopes toward it like a theater. Here is the Phoenician which is mixed also with all kinds of cultivated and fruitful trees. Though it consists mostly of palm trees, it is 100 stadia in length and is everywhere watered with streams. Here also are the palace and the balsam park. A stadion was a Greek measurement of length and was just over 600 feet, about 185 meters. So 100 stadia was about 11 miles over 18 kilometers. Even in our modern context, for the region, this was a large agricultural area. Of course, do note, he didn't mention the width of the city. Early in the next century, Jesus would pass through Jericho. In Matthew chapter 20, he would heal two blind men just after departing the city. Also, as recounted in Luke 19, it was in Jericho that he ran into the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. Earlier in Luke, in chapter 10, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, set on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. John Wesley, the 18th century English theologian, 
wrote that Jericho, in the time of Christ, was the home to about 12,000 priests and Levites, all in service of the temple. With the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Jericho would decline, but was the base of operations for a small Roman army force. Sixty years later, the Romans would build a fort there, a fortification that was pivotal in the Third Jewish-Roman War, fought between 132 and 136 AD. After that, the record went silent for a century and a half. In 333, a Christian writer noted that the town had been moved yet again, another single mile, 1.6 kilometers, to the east. This is the spot where the current Jericho is located. Over the next couple of centuries, Jericho would experience another resurgence in a growing population. Most of the people would identify as Christian, as indicated by the ruins of churches and monasteries, though there remained a small Jewish population with two synagogues. Then, in the 7th century, the Muslims invaded and the Christian population dwindled. At least until a late 7th century caliph exiled the regional Christians and Jews to Jericho. Not long afterwards, an earthquake hit the city, essentially leveling it. Ten years later, a Christian traveler visited the city and recorded it remained completely destroyed. The former inhabitants were living in shanties around the Dead Sea. Throughout all of this, the city continued as an agricultural center, with a 10th century record showing the production of dates, flowers, palms, and even bananas. When I first read that last one, I was surprised, thinking bananas were native to South America. That's not true. They're actually native to India, Southeast Asia, and Australia. So, they had to be imported to Jericho, but not across an ocean. The same writer noted that the water found there was the best quality of water in the larger region. In the 11th century, the city was invaded by the Seljuk Turks and began a decline. Then, in the 12th century, the Crusaders arrived. Late in that century, they would rebuild the monastery, located about 6 miles, 10 kilometers from the city. They would also construct two more churches and an additional monastery, and even built a mill that produced sugar, sugar sourced from local cane. The Crusaders would be driven from the city in 1187 by the resurgent Islamist, and the town began to decline again. In the next century, Jericho was noted for its nearby sulfur mines. The Ottomans would take over in 1517, and according to records, Jericho was now a source of indigo, another plant originally from Southeast Asia, along with possibly Africa, and used for blue dye. Other crops from the period included fruit, grapes, and the traditional wheat and barley. Livestock included goats, water buffalo, and bees for honey. Though throughout Ottoman rule, the population continued this slow decline to as few as about 50 homes in the 17th century. By 1900, the population had dwindled further to in the neighborhood of 30 homes. An accurate headcount is difficult, as censuses of the time tended to count only the adult male inhabitants. The Ottomans made the wrong allies in World War I, which led to the British taking over, an era known as the British Mandate, 
more specifically referred to in the region as Mandatory Palestine. This would continue through the end of World War II. Following the war and the establishment of the Nation of Israel, Jericho would become part of Jordan. Then, in 1967, the regional powers fought what has become known as the Six-Day War. By about the third day, the Israeli forces captured Jericho. It has remained part of Israel since. Then, as part of the Oslo Accords in 1993, the Palestinian Authority would be given limited self-rule in the city and in parts of the West Bank in general. Though, in the years since, several terrorist incidents have led to changes in this control, a fluctuating situation that remains through this day. And that's it for Jericho, in the history of the people, places, and things found in the Book of Numbers. Join me next week, and I'll get started on Deuteronomy, beginning with the summary of the book. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.